When my mug shots were on the front page of the newspaper, I had about four or five months of recovery. This is Lindsay. She had just completed treatment for an opioid addiction, an addiction made very public by this front page story. I feel like I was mostly prepared, but I don't know if I ever could have been prepared for actually seeing that. And one of the hardest things was to walk through the grocery store in my hometown. Having your private life thrown out in the open would be embarrassing under any circumstances. But Lindsay's role in her community made her feel particularly exposed. My recovery when I went through my legal ramifications was very public. I was a nurse practitioner with a successful private practice. And in a small town, things are are usually um, not so private, maybe as compared to larger cities where not everyone knows everyone. One of the first things you'll notice about Lindsay is how calmly she recalls these difficult moments from the past. She's measured and soft-spoken, but don't mistake her sweet voice as a sign of weakness. What I decided to do was experience and feel the guilt and shame that even though I was working through had kind of came flooding back during the the mugshots in the newspaper, but I decided to feel it, deal with it, talk to people about it, and experience it because for so long my coping mechanism was to numb myself and I knew I couldn't do that or I wasn't going to work through it. I kept pushing forward. I kept going to the grocery store. I kept going out in public even though I still felt embarrassed and I decided at that point even though publicly people had seen what my addiction did to my life, they were going to see what recovery looked like. From Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers, a new podcast about rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction. This is Voices of Recovery. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger. With high stress and easier access to prescription drugs, healthcare practitioners have some of the highest rates of drug addiction in the country. They're also some of the least likely to ask for help. But before Lindsay became a nurse practitioner, She had already felt the impact of addiction as a kid growing up with an alcoholic parent. This experience influenced Lindsay's decision to study medicine. My story really starts, I think, when I went to college to become a nurse. I knew that from a very young age, I wanted to be in a profession where I was helping others. I came from a family where my father was an alcoholic, and so I was always intrigued about diseases and behaviors and illnesses and and wanted to help correct that because I felt that I could never really help my dad. So I kind of made it a lifelong goal that I would be able to help someone else. An addict tends to place their usage ahead of everything else. This can be confusing and frustrating when you're a child witnessing that behavior. When my father was raising us and he was an active alcoholic, I did not look at it as a disease. I looked at it in two different ways, actually. A, that there must be something wrong with me, otherwise he wouldn't drink and put that before me and would be a father. And then the other way that I looked at it is selfishness, that he was selfish, choosing something over me. 
I can remember as far back as to five or six when he would come home from work and he would sit down and drink a six pack of beer and I would ask him to help me with something or go outside and he wouldn't. And so I took that personally. Maybe I wasn't good enough. Maybe there was something wrong with me that he was choosing to drink instead of spending time with me. Lindsay didn't let her upbringing hold her back. In fact, it's what pushed her forward. Her goal was very clear. She wanted to help people. She set her ambitions on the field of healthcare, and she became a nurse, earned her master's degree, and was a nurse practitioner by her early 20s. But it was around that time that Lindsay got some news that would alter the course of her life. When I was 25, I was diagnosed with a rare form of reproductive cancer. And the recommendation at that time was to have a full hysterectomy and radiation, but I hadn't started a family yet. And another one of my lifelong goals and dreams was to be a mother. So I felt at that time very angry, um, to be honest, and very scared and alone. I decided not to have the hysterectomy. What I decided to do was start a family as quickly as I could. Soon after Lindsay and her husband decided to start a family, she found out she was pregnant. She said the day she was told she was going to be a mother was one of the happiest of her life. I kind of looked back and reflected and through my life, like I mentioned before, having an alcoholic father, then the diagnosis of cancer, I kind of had had this chip on my shoulder and a feeling that life wasn't fair. And so the day that I was told I was going to be a mom, I felt a little comfort and and thought, you know, maybe maybe life is okay. Maybe things do work out. And so I, I was in um, a fairly good place at that time. There were complications early in her pregnancy, likely related to the cancer treatment that Lindsay underwent. Doctors informed her that the pregnancy was high risk and put her on bed rest. But at five and a half months, she went into labor. I didn't know it at the time, but um, I had developed an infection, so I wasn't well and the baby wasn't well. And so when she was born, she didn't live very long. And I lost my daughter. Her name was McKaylee, and she was very beautiful. And I look back at that time, and I realize now that I just emotionally shut down. I said, okay, life isn't fair. You know, I I really at that point didn't have any faith in anything. Um, There was just different challenges up to that point that were a cumulative effect, and that was kind of the icing on the cake. And I just decided that... Spiritually, there was probably nothing out there. Life wasn't fair, and I began to become very resentful and and angry. After a childhood where she was powerless to save her father from his drinking, Lindsay again found herself helpless and hopeless in the face of a shattering loss. That she was able to function at all is a testament to her strength, but Lindsay was on shaky ground, unsure how to cope. Then, a surprise. Lindsay and her husband discovered they were expecting another baby. Now, she wasn't sure she ever wanted to go through that again, especially so soon after losing her daughter. Lindsay was closely monitored, and this time, the pregnancy went okay. At seven and a half months, her son Brogan was born. The baby was healthy, but premature, and had to be airlifted from their small eastern Oregon town to a larger hospital. 
and they took him out of my arms, I remember shutting down emotionally again. And um, I felt that I had to prepare myself for pretty much the worst because that's kind of what I had expected. Lindsay stayed behind while Broken was airlifted to a neonatal intensive care unit in a hospital three hours away. She went to see him the following day, but it would be two weeks before he could actually come home with her. I remember emotionally during those two weeks still being on guard that maybe something could go south, that something could go wrong, just because that was my thinking after my Kaylee died. Again, I had these thoughts that life wasn't fair. If there was a God, I didn't really feel like he was looking out for me. Again, because of just things that had gone on in my life, I just didn't have any faith. And I didn't have a lot of hope at that time. And I felt um, like I had put up a wall, like I didn't want to allow myself to feel much um, because I didn't want to go through any more pain. Over the next two weeks, Lindsay and her husband stayed close to Brogan, visiting him in the NICU every two to four hours. The baby's health improved, but then Lindsay began to feel sick. At first, she assumed it was exhaustion and stress. But then the day after they finally brought Brogan home, Lindsay woke up with a fever of 104. She was rushed to the ER where doctors discovered she was septic and operated immediately. This would be the first of seven surgeries Lindsay would undergo before her son turned one. And with each procedure, her doctors prescribed opioids for pain management. What I quickly realized with the pain medication is that not only did it take away my physical pain, but it took away my emotional pain. And I finally felt like I didn't have to feel anymore. And after McKaylee died, I wanted to be numb. I didn't have a lot of coping skills to deal with that. And then the experience with Brogan and then having those surgeries, it was just a way for me to emotionally shut off and check out, and that's what I did. It did not take long for Lindsay's usage to grow into addiction, and it took even less time for that addiction to become all-consuming. After a year, the addiction was out of control. I was being prescribed them and quickly misused them, took more of them. It had become almost survival mode. I had to have them. If I didn't have them, I was sick. If I had them, I was obsessing about how I was going to get more. For those closest to Lindsay, it was clear she was going through something. But they attributed these behaviors to grief and stress. There was no denying her personality had changed. She was isolating. Even Lindsay said that keeping her secret had become a 24-7 job. And she tried to maintain the illusion that everything was okay, even as she was losing control. I was going through the motions of being a wife and a mother and a daughter and a nurse practitioner. I had all those identities, but really the drugs took away the ability to be fully present in any relationship. And it literally, I think, um, took my soul away. I didn't enjoy my family. I kept my addiction a secret. I had guilt and shame. I was numb, which initially I think worked for me, but then I realized I wasn't able to experience any of the good emotions either. And because of my career, my job profession, 
at that time I had become a nurse practitioner, I I was so embarrassed and I thought I should have known better that I really felt like I couldn't ask for help. I, I was too ashamed and thought in my profession, how dare I? And so that really kept me even more isolated. For a healthcare practitioner, the idea of being powerless over a substance is shameful and incomprehensible. They hold themselves to high standards and are all too aware of the stigma and career consequences that come with admitting an addiction. Tens of thousands of doctors, nurses, dentists, anesthesiologists, and pharmacists struggle with an addiction, but are too ashamed or too afraid to ask for help. My job performance started to be affected, and I began doing things in my life and in my career to support my drug habit, and um, it eventually led me down to doing things illegally and becoming um, a person that I, I never thought I would ever become. My morals and values were down the drain, and it was I was out of control. Lindsay's experience becoming dependent on a prescribed medication is fairly common. In fact, it's a story we've told before. In a previous episode, we spoke with Nate, a pill addict who turned to heroin when he no longer had access to legal prescriptions. Faced with the same dilemma, Lindsay's options as a healthcare professional were a little different. There are some controls in place to limit a practitioner's ability to self-prescribe or steal pharmaceuticals from the workplace but there are always ways around that. After I was no longer being prescribed them, then I started to figure out ways to write prescriptions illegally. Um, as a nurse practitioner, I had the ability to write prescriptions, which was a, a dangerous situation. And again, the perfect storm because I, my access was large at that time. And and that's how my mom caught on to what was going on. She had found out that I had written a prescription in her name. This wasn't an isolated incident. Lindsay had been writing numerous fake prescriptions in other people's names, sometimes making up patients who didn't exist. But it was her mom who finally realized and intervened. She called me one day and she said, I know what's going on. And... I felt a sense of relief because I wanted so bad to, to, to get help. I just didn't know how to do it. Um, but at the same time, I was scared um, because I felt like I had let everybody in my life down. And I remember I said to her, Mom, you must hate me. You must think I'm this awful person. And she said, no, I'm just glad that you're, you're still alive. And do you want help? And I said, yes. Admitting she had a problem was difficult, but accepting help was even more complicated. There are career-ending implications to coming out as an addict. When my mother asked me if I wanted help, that was another area that I had so much guilt and shame is I thought, oh my gosh, what's going to happen in my career? Because I loved doing what I did so much. It, it was part of my identity and who I was. And I couldn't believe that I was doing the things that I was doing in my practice. And so a lot of guilt and shame was as a provider, how could I have done that? Lindsay decided that the impact on her health was more important than the potential fallout to her career. So she accepted her family's help. My family 
picked out Serenity Lane. And partly because they have a healthcare professional program, they have a addiction-free pain management program and a lot of resources for, for my different needs that I had at the time. It was difficult because it was five hours away from my home, but I knew that if I wanted to get my life back, that I had to go to any length to do it. Serenity Lane has long recognized the need for a treatment program dedicated specifically to healthcare professionals. It's tailored to address the fears that keep many practitioners from getting help in the first place. With this in mind, there's an additional focus placed on maintaining or regaining their professional licensures when appropriate. This was important for Lindsay because before checking in, she had taken the steps to officially surrender her license. I called my state board, um, my state nursing board, and was honest about what was going on and let them know that I was going to get help. And of course, because what I was doing was illegal, um, they in turn notified law enforcement. So it was decided that I would be able to go to rehab and get help, and then I'd face my legal consequences after I was done with treatment. And that's exactly what I did. A moment of clarity, a sense of relief, and the drive to rehab. These are three experiences we heard described a lot from the people we talked to in this series. For Lindsay, the drive was quiet. There wasn't a whole lot of talking. So I will never forget that five-hour car ride coming from my hometown to Eugene. I was very embarrassed. I felt like there was not a lot of hope. I felt very alone because I thought that I was the only person who had ever done what I had done. I, I didn't think there was anybody out there who, who could possibly have done some of those things that I had done. And I really felt at the time that I probably didn't even deserve the help because I had done so many horrible things and had hurt my family. And so the ride over was, was pretty, um, it's pretty sad. The closer I got, the more anxious and fearful I got because I didn't really know what to expect at, at treatment. But when I got to Eugene, it was in the afternoon, actually it was the early evening, and I wasn't expecting to see a doctor, um, but when I got to the hospital detox unit, there was a wonderful doctor by the name of Ronald Schwarzler that was waiting there for me. And he took me into his office right away and introduced himself. And he sat me down in his office and he asked me to tell him how I got here. And what he meant by got here is how did I end up through my life being on a pathway that through addiction led me to treatment. And I was so embarrassed and so ashamed to be telling another medical professional what I had done that I couldn't even barely get the words out. I was crying, I was hyperventilating. I was so uncomfortable sharing that story, but for some reason I did it and he listened and was very quiet, but had me keep going in my story. And then after I was done sharing my story, 
he shared a little bit of his, which had a lot of similarities to mine. And I tell people it was the first spiritual experience really that I ever had where I felt like I wasn't alone, things were going to be okay, and that there was hope. It was the first time I had had hope in a very long time. And I thought, there's other people out there like me. I, I didn't really know that for some reason. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not alone. I said, you're like me. And he said, yes, I'm like you. And I said, I'm going to be okay. And he said, Lindsay, you're going to be more than okay. Lindsay went into treatment weighed down by guilt and shame. The last thing she expected to find in rehab was a kindred spirit. But meeting Dr. Schwarzler, realizing she wasn't alone, this was a turning point. Lindsay had found hope in treatment, but she wasn't yet able to fully move on from her past. In the middle of my recovery, after I completed outpatient, I had to face my legal charges. I went through two mugshots being on the front page of the newspaper. So this brings us back to where we started. Newly sober and back in her hometown, Lindsay's potential criminal conviction, along with her secret pill addiction, were suddenly front page news. You know, throughout this season, we've been sharing many helpful acronyms from the recovery world, and this brings up another, fear. Face everything and recover. Getting sober didn't magically fix all of Lindsay's problems. In fact, many of her fears had come true and were still waiting for her after treatment. Her secret was out, her career was compromised. It would have been really easy to give up, but Lindsay faced it. She kept going to that grocery store, she didn't hide, and she brought the same mindset to dealing with her charges. It may sound strange, but that was one of the turning points for my recovery. I was actually so ready to face my consequences because I knew that was the only way that I was going to have freedom and a, a, a moment of turning my guilt and shame into an amends. I was going to be able to work through those processes and heal, really. That's where the healing begins is when you can make amends. Lindsay was sentenced to two weeks in county jail. But even that experience would reveal something vital to her recovery, the power she had to help others simply by being compassionate and empathetic. The amazing part, I think, about my jail experience is that I was in a jail cell with a woman who was on her fifth DUI and a methamphetamine addict who was 19. They were able to let me have my literature, um, my uh, rehab literature in jail with me, so I was able to pass on some things to those two individuals, which was was great. was amazing. They were very open to me sharing and talking about my experience. And so basically what I did is I told them my story of how I got to jail. And that started with my story that I'm telling today. Modern medicine continues to puzzle over addiction. For many in the healthcare field, it remains a disease to treat like any other. And they're often baffled if the treatment fails. With her combined experience as a practitioner and an addict in recovery, Lindsay had new insights into what patients were experiencing, and this made her reconsider her previous assumptions about addiction. 
I initially think that early on in my profession, I was part of a stigma of providers who labeled people as drug-seeking addicts and had more of a naive thinking in that they were choosing that lifestyle, that they were maybe morally deficient. <laughs> and I, I, I don't mean to make light of that, but it, it reminds me just of how much I did not know at that time. Uh, I gave them more credit for having control over something that they didn't have control over. My experience as an addict myself has been that can't be further from the truth because when I became one of those people, when I became the addict, I had that negative stereotype in my head and I thought, oh my gosh, I am, I am one of those people. I'm, I'm an addict. I'm so grateful for that experience because I have this passion now to decrease stigma and raise awareness of addiction because I've, I've looked at it from both angles. I've looked at it as a provider where I labeled people as drug seekers and addicts and then I became one and I'm in recovery from an addiction. So I think it actually helps me when I sit down with a patient because I remember vividly those two thoughts. All told, Lindsay would spend several years putting her career back together. She surrendered her license for three years and then completed a monitoring program. She meticulously followed every step of the process to ensure that she could safely practice again. She got her license back and then started doing recovery work locally, organizing events and activities to raise awareness and reduce stigma. She knew that she wanted to do more, though she didn't see how that was possible in a small town. A couple years ago, Dr. Schwarzer started calling me and telling me that he thought I needed to be working in this profession. And at first my answer was no. Um, things were going good in, in my small hometown. I was working in recovery, doing some different things in my community. And I really didn't feel like I could ever leave. And the more he kept calling and the more I kept thinking about it, you know, every time I turned around, there was something that was pointing me in this direction. So Lindsay packed up her life in that small town she moved with her husband and son to Eugene, Oregon, to start a new chapter in their lives. Lindsay joined the staff at Sarandi Lane as a nurse practitioner, working in the very hospital unit where she started her own journey to recovery. There, she had the opportunity to work alongside the man who started as her doctor and would become her friend and mentor. So when I took the job at Serenity Lane, I had the best teacher and the best mentor in Dr. Ronald Schwarzer. And as a former patient, I was able to feel, I think, comfortable right away because it was a place that was familiar to me. I'd went through treatment, and so I knew to some extent what the patients were going through. So that part of it really felt comfortable to me. I kind of felt like almost like I was home again. As I continued to work, what I realized is that the gift of my recovery has allowed me to give what Dr. Schwarzer gave me years ago and pay it forward every single day that I'm here at work. 
And I think that that's the beautiful thing about recovery and the treatment of addiction is when you're in recovery and you go through treatment, you have this profound ability to help someone else, even if you're not in the medical profession. If you know what that experience is like, it allows you to be with another person on a level that allows you to give them some hope. Dr. Schwarzler passed away in 2015 after a battle with cancer. Lindsay honors his memory every day by treating patients with compassion as a nurse practitioner at Serenity Lane. She's achieved the goal that she set for herself all those years back, using her experiences to help those struggling in the face of addiction. She's also met her second goal. She's a mom and her family is thriving. My son is now 12 and a half, and so that's an interesting age, but the nice thing about recovery is that it helped me be the mom that I always dreamed to be. I think I have a different outlook in life in that I can use my recovery tools in any area of my life, even with parenting and and dealing with a middle schooler. So... Um, he knows all about my recovery. He has um, participated in a lot of recovery events. He knows where I work. He knows what I do. And the best thing that I think has occurred over time with our relationship is that there's that openness. There's no secrets. There's no hiding what I've gone through. And he has an understanding of it um, because it's part of life and it might be something that he faces or he sees somebody else face. So he's, he's very aware of, of what addiction and recovery looks like. Lindsay even had a chance to help her father, the man she watched struggle for so many years. A magical thing about my father's experience is that he struggled with alcoholism off and on almost his whole life. And last year he called me and he had started drinking again. And he said that he saw what I had went through and how I had been helped and he wanted that. So he was able to go through a program at Serenity Lane and he is currently sober and doing well. Life often seems completely unfair. For Lindsay, her early life was marked by a series of difficult experiences and the pain was overwhelming. But today she says that she's living life on life's terms. I can say now, you know what, life isn't fair sometimes, or there's going to be bumps in the road. There's going to be grief and loss like I went through. There's going to be divorces or job losses or lots of things that we go through, but there is a way out. There is a way through that doesn't involve drugs and alcohol. She's carrying on an important legacy that inspires her work every day. And that work has not gone unnoticed. In 2016, Lindsay received the Medical Professional Award, which recognizes one outstanding healthcare professional in the community who exemplifies the spirit of caring, compassion, and commitment to those who suffer from chemical dependency. Standing in front of her colleagues, award in hand, Lindsay once again retold her story. Her acceptance speech is emotional and triumphant, and I'll leave you now with an excerpt. It's amazing to be standing up here today with such um, a large group of amazing people doing extraordinary things um, in the field of addiction. And so I'm very honored to be amongst um, great people like you. 
Almost seven years ago, I walked into Serenity Lane as a patient at a time where I, I really didn't know if I wanted to live anymore. I'm not going to get through this without crying, so I apologize in advance. I met an extraordinary man by the name of Ronald Schwarzler, and he waited for me that night that I got there, and it's because of him and the staff at Serenity Lane and people like you that I was able to continue in my journey and get well. I have the best job in the world, absolutely the best job in the world. I get to go to work every day and work with the most extraordinary team of people and get to pass on what Ronald Schwarzer gave me. And I truly believe that if we treat the addict and alcoholic um, with respect, kindness, compassion, and give them hope, amazing things will happen. So I just want to thank my family um, for your unconditional love, um, people that work in the field of addiction that cheer um, people on, um, because you are the true heroes. And to the people in recovery, taking it one day at a time, you're also heroes. So thank you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Voices of Recovery. All episodes are available at SoundCloud and on iTunes. Follow our Facebook page for photos and sneak previews of upcoming episodes. Rate us and write us a review on iTunes to help let people know about the show. Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers in Oregon and Washington. This episode was recorded and edited by me, Jackie Danziger, writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. Our music was composed by Sammy Gallo with additional tracks by C-Stock Audio. Our production coordinator is James Tyson. Thank you to everyone at Serenity Lane who helps make the show possible. We'll see you in a few weeks with more stories of rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction. Thank you.